All right, Luke chapter 2. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles under the chair in front of you, that will be on page 857. Now, I love this passage about the angel song, but we got to be honest. We got to be honest about something this morning. This passage is probably, out of all the passages in the Bible, been more commercialized than any other. You know what I'm talking about? Like you get Christmas cards, and what do they say? Glory to God, peace on earth. What? Goodwill to men. You have ornaments of angels on top of your Christmas tree singing, or maybe just one angel, or a star maybe. But we have ornaments of angels. We, get, we see nativity scenes around the neighborhood that look so precious, right? With, with, you have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in, in a manger or a feeding trough for donkeys. And it looks so warm and precious, I don't know how you make giving birth in a barn, putting your baby in a feeding trough for donkeys look precious, but nativity scenes nail it, don't they? (laughs) It's all so sentimental and warm. And it all seems so wonderful around Christmas time. And if we're honest, it all seems so fake, doesn't it? It feels a lot like the myths around Santa Claus and St. Nick. You know, jolly old St. Nick. But, but if, if, if Luke, the author of this gospel, saw the way we commercialize this and how fake it seemed today, he would turn over in his grave. Luke was a physician. And in this gospel, his intention was to present well-researched historical facts for us. You read in the opening to this gospel, he, he says, I, I, I worked really hard. I, I talked to a lot of eyewitnesses to present an orderly account for you, Theophilus, so that you might have certainty concerning these things. This is history. And brothers and sisters, we need to pinch ourselves around Christmas time when we read this. We need to get rid of the, We need to blow off the pixie dust on this passage. We need to tell the unicorns to go away. This is history. This happened. And what this passage is about this morning, it's about the meaning of the birth of Jesus for us and for our world. It's about the meaning of the birth of Jesus. It's it's an angel coming and telling shepherds what the birth of Jesus means for us. This matters. What I think the main point of this passage for us is this morning is this. This is what I think the main passage, the main thing we're meant to get from this this morning is this. God's glory has drawn near for our rescue and for our rejoicing. God's glory has drawn near for our rescue and for our rejoicing. If, you, if we ask, what does the, according to this passage, what does the birth of Jesus mean? It means this. God's glory has drawn near for our rescue and for our rejoicing. And when I say for our rescue and for our rejoicing, I don't mean two separate things. Like, he wants to rescue us, and then separately from our rescue, he wants us to have joy. No, it's he comes to rescue us, and because we've been rescued, we have reason for great joy. The angel did, after all, say, I bring you good news of great joy. And so this morning, when I come saying that, that we have reason for great rejoicing. I don't, mean, I don't mean we have reason for great joy right now because it's Christmas time. And Christmas is, after all, the jolliest time of year. With kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. <laughs> you didn't come to church this morning to hear someone get up on the pulpit and say, be of good cheer, it's Christmas time. No, no, no. The reasons given to us for joy in this passage are solid, weighty reasons. 
It's, a, it's, it's joy rooted in truths that are deep, deeper than our circumstances, deeper than what's going on in this world. Yes, it's a type of joy that is bolstered at Christmas time, hopefully, but it's a type of joy that also weathers the bleakness of January. It's a type of joy that carries you when the brokenness of this world bears in on you. It's a type of joy that overflows in love and evangelism and sacrificial giving. It's a type of joy that has steel in it. It's a type of joy that, frankly, many people in this world don't understand. That's what type of joy is offered to us in the saving work of Jesus. Now, this passage, this sermon is not about me telling you how to have more joy in your life. Don't miss the point. It's not about me telling you how to have more joy in your life. This sermon is about heaven's interpretation of the meaning of the birth of Jesus. And if we embrace it, if we get it, it has the power to produce ironclad joy in our lives, which I want that. So let's jump into the passage. We have three sections in this passage. We see first the announce or uh, the appearance of God's glory, the appearance of God's glory. The second section we're going to see is the announcement of God's gospel. And the third section we're going to see is the extolment of God's grace, the appearance of God's glory, the announcement of God's gospel, and the extolment of God's grace. Let's jump into verse 9 here, or verse 8. We were just told that Jesus was born. He was laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough for donkeys. It was probably the only thing. It alludes to the fact that Jesus was born in probably an animal room of an inn in the first century. Jesus was laid in a manger. And in verse 8, in that same region, the area of Bethlehem, we're told there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, that is, appeared to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, this birth is the most significant birth in history. And usually births like this are announced to Caesar's household. They're publicized on the news, but not this birth. This birth happens, and the first people to be told about it are the shepherds in the field. Now, I don't know. Shepherds have been romanticized in the nativity scenes, I know. But shepherds are probably nothing like you've seen in the nativity scenes. These are hardworking men. These were not religious people of the first century. They were often considered unclean because of their work with animals and, and largely exiled from the religious life of Israel. These were hardworking, simple, rugged men. And they were in the middle of their work, in the middle of the night, watching sheep, protecting them from lions and bears. And an angel appears to them. They're the first ones to hear about the birth of Jesus. That is very significant. But not only does an angel appear to them, The second half of verse 9 says, The glory of the Lord shone around them. That's a far more significant piece. Angels in this passage have appeared to several people. You got an angel appearing to Zechariah, angel appearing to Mary, and Matthew tells us an angel also appeared to Joseph, Mary's um, husband to be. So it's not all that surprising that an angel appears to the shepherds. What's surprising is that the glory of the Lord shines in Bethlehem, in the field. What is the glory of the Lord doing shining in a field to shepherds? The glory of the Lord is always, in the, in, most of the time in the Bible, it's associated with the temple. That's the far more significant piece here, that the glory of the Lord shines in Bethlehem. An angel appears, angels are messengers. An angel appears with a message, but the glory of the Lord shines to these shepherds. And, and the end of verse 9 tells us that they were filled with great fear. 
Why? Because they're guilty. They're sinners. And while we might be tempted to be impressed with ourselves, otherwise, when the glory of the Lord shines for you, you're no longer impressed with yourself. You see your sin for what it is, and they were filled with great fear. The good news is what the angel tells, the message that the angel brings. Look at verse 10. This is the announcement of God's gospel. The angel said to them, fear not. He sees that they're afraid. He says, fear not. In other words, this glory is not meant to make you afraid right now. This glory is meant to represent what I'm about to tell you. The angel is about to explain to them what the glory of God shining means. The glory of God shows them something, and now the angel is about to tell them something about what that means. What does it mean that the glory of God is here in a field? In Bethlehem, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is what the angel says. This glory, this news that I come to bring is good news. It's not news of judgment. It's good news of great joy. Now, friends, the angel says, I bring you good news. That would, that would be sufficient, right, to comfort us, to bring us encouragement in the wake of our fears, right? Good news. But the angel doesn't just say good news because that would not accurately communicate how good this good news is. The angel has to say, I bring you good news of what? Of great joy. Good news of great joy. Now, listen to me. If this is the message that we as Christians celebrate and are to be known for, good news of great joy, can I just ask us something? Why are so many Christians known for being grumpy and miserable and gloomy? Anybody else asking that question? Like, if, if this is our message, good news of great joy, why do Christians seem so miserable? Especially Christians who love theology, love God's sovereignty, are always studying, are always trying to go deep. For them, it's like, the more miserable you are, the holier you are. It's like, dude, you're really, you're really in the dumps today, man. You must have really met with the Lord this morning. And you're like, why do we give that impression? Listen, theology is good. God's sovereignty is good. Go deep in your theology. But let's stop sucking on sour lemons while we're reading our theology books and inform our faces once in a while that the sovereign grace of God has come to save you. Amen? Angel comes to bring good news of great joy. What is this good news of great joy? Look at verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't miss those opening words. For unto you. This is the angel talking to the shepherds, the nobodies. Not religious people, and they're saying, the angel saying, Unto you is born in this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And unto us, this Jesus, the birth of Jesus is not irrelevant for them. It's not irrelevant for us. It's actually precisely for our sake that Jesus came. And notice, note, the angel gives three titles to Jesus He's a Savior. And he's Christ, and he's the Lord. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if you guys read this book. I assume you do. But I don't know of any other place where all of those titles meet and converge in one person other than here. This is the only place. 
For them, for these shepherds to hear this, they would be stunned. Okay, a Savior, got it. Christ, okay, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that the Old Testament has been telling us about for years, got it. The Lord? Okay, this, this baby's a big deal. Now, when, when the angel calls this baby a Savior, in, in Luke's birth narrative, most of the Old Testament God himself is almost exclusively the one referred to as a savior or the savior. A savior is somebody who rescues, who saves. In the Old Testament, it was being rescued from their enemies, being rescued from their sins. And, and in fact, like Hannah preached last week, when we talk about Jesus being a savior, what is he saving us from? Jump back to chapter 1, verse 77 in Zechariah's song. Zechariah says that this, this baby, John the Baptist, is going to prepare the way for, for the coming of Jesus, verse 77, to give knowledge of what? Of salvation to his people. And in what does this salvation consist? In the forgiveness of their sins. Yes, God will deliver us from all of our enemies. He will deliver us from all of the conflict and strife that goes on on this earth. But first and foremost, he came to save us from our sins. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when, when Mary is told to name Jesus, the angel says, I want you to name him Mary. Or I, Mary, I want you to <laughs> Mary, I want you to name him Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means Yahweh saves, and he will save his people from their sins. In fact, in this passage, you jump down to verse 14, the angel song. We know this well. Well, we could probably know it by heart. Glory to God in the highest, and what? And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now that that peace. Um, one day Jesus will put an end to all conflict in this world. And when we, when we trust in Jesus, he does give us peace in our hearts, but that's not mainly what the angels are talking about. The angels talking about peace between God and rebels like us. We are not naturally on good terms with God. Because of our sin, we are his enemies. And there's hostility between us and God. Because God is holy, he hates sin, and that's a good thing that he hates sin, but that means that his justice is aimed at us and we're his enemies. But what the angel says, in the coming of Jesus, he came to save us, and the result of his saving work, the result of his saving work on the cross means that we get forgiveness of sins and we're brought into a relationship of peace and favor with God. What could be more wonderful? Well, this baby is also called Christ. Or the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, for thousands of years, God's people were promised a Messiah who would come, a king from the line of David who would come rule and reign over them, deliver them from their enemies and save them. The angel saying, this is that baby. This is the promised king from the line of David. No, by the way, where is this baby born? Bethlehem. But the angels don't call it Bethlehem, do they? They say, in the city of who? In the city of David is born a baby who is Christ. But he's not just a savior. He's not just Christ. He is the Lord. And this is the most shocking part. This is the most shocking part. Lord is not just a respectful term of authority for, for someone that's, you know, over you a little bit. In this passage, Lord always refers to the personal name of God himself. Even earlier in this passage, what happened when the angel appeared to the shepherds? The glory of who? The glory of the Lord shone around them. John the Baptist was called to prepare the way for who? The Lord. That was quoted from the Old Testament referring to the covenant God of Israel. And this baby here is called a Savior who is Christ 
the Lord. This baby is the Lord himself come down. Now we're asking, why did the glory appear to the shepherds away from the temple in the fields in Bethlehem? Why did the glory of the Lord appear there? Because this baby is the Lord himself. And in this, in, in this person, the glory of the Lord has drawn near to these shepherds. That's why the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Because this baby is the Lord himself. So many, other, so many other religions are about us working our way up to God, us striving, coming, and, and, and you know, so many other religions use this metaphor of us journeying our way up the mountain to meet with God. Even in the Old Testament, that's what Moses did. But the story of the Bible is so different from that. It's God come down to rescue sinners. He came low to rescue us. And the, the Bible story goes further than that. The Bible goes further to say, hey, you weren't, it's not like you were even on some quest for God. You weren't searching for God. You weren't looking for him. But he came down looking for you. You didn't find him. He found you. He came for you to bear your sins and save you. What God does this? Only our God. Only our God comes down to save those who have rebelled against him. What love, my God, would bring you down to earth? This child is Christ the Lord. Now, I get, I get that if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe this is the first time you're hearing something like this, it can sound ridiculous. Like, God, okay, I, it's hard enough to believe in God, but that God would come down as a baby. Like you said, this story wasn't going to sound fake. It kind of sounds fake. But here's what I would say. The Old Testament prophesied that this would happen over 700 years ago. Listen to this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. This is the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah 9, 6 says, prophesies, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Sound familiar? It should. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. In other words, he's going to reign as king. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And listen to this. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Did you catch it? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. His name will be called what? Mighty God, El Gibor, Everlasting Father, literally Father of Eternity. 700 years before Jesus came, there's this prophecy that a child is going to be born and his name is going to be Mighty God. Now, that doesn't prove anything, I know. But there's consistency here about what was proclaimed and about what Luke tells us he carefully researched and happened. And even if you don't, even if you're like, it still sounds ridiculous, that's fine. But you can at least agree that the problems in this world are so big that humanity is not ever going to solve them on their own, right? We've been, trying, we've been trying it for a long time. The 20th century was one of the most bloody, painful centuries in all of human history. If we're ever likely to get anywhere with this thing, it's going to take outside intervention from God. Even if you don't believe he exists, you can, you can at least agree that that would make sense, that God would need to intervene in this world for anything to improve. And that's exactly what Isaiah 9 promises. He's going to bring forth justice and righteousness. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's what Jesus promises to do. But first and foremost, it starts with the forgiveness of our sins. 
Now, verse 12, we have this we have this news, this good news of great joy about this baby who was born, who's a savior, who's Christ the Lord. In verse 12, the shepherds are given a confirmatory sign. They're given a confirmatory sign, a sign meant to confirm which baby this is. I mean, imagine if they got the baby wrong. I mean, they show up and steal someone's baby. This, is, this baby is the Messiah. He's the king. No, the angel says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, the swaddling cloths are not the sign. It would be perfectly ordinary for a baby to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Unless I'm misunderstanding what those are. Um, the sign is that the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths is lying in a manger. That's the confirmatory sign. Why is that the sign? Why is it the sign that Jesus is lying in a manger? I'll tell you why it's a sign. Because they're not going to find one single other baby lying in a feeding trough. Like mothers just don't do that when their babies are born. Right? The nativity scenes show sheep and donkeys. I mean, you can just see a donkey nibbling on Jesus' hair. Mothers don't put their newborn babies in a manger. Mary did. And that's the sign. That's the sign. Now, it's not just a confirmatory sign. It's also a statement, isn't it? This, high, this king who, is, who has titles that no other person has had, Savior, Christ, Lord, is in, born in an animal room and lying in a feeding trough. The contrast could not be more apparent, right? It, it's this high, exalted king, the Lord himself, come so low. The lowly beginnings of, of Jesus are wonderful here. And they make a point. They make a point. They forecast for us the path of suffering and humility that this Savior is going to walk. The lowly beginnings forecast the humiliating end of this Savior. And the humiliating end is not for nothing. If it, was, it was for a purpose. It was the very, the reason the manger forecasts the cross is because it's on the cross that he came to save us. For the Jewish mind to think of their Messiah lying in a barn, in a feeding trough, would be almost unfathomable to their mind. And yet, the summary of our Christian message would be even more unfathomable. What's the summary of our message? Christ crucified that would be an oxymoron two words that don't belong together and yet that that's the essence of our message God himself come down to this world as if that wasn't enough for him to come down and rescue us he went even lower to the cross where he would bear our sin on his shoulders, and he would suffer for us that our sins might be wiped away and forgiven forevermore. The manger forecasts the cross. Well, we've seen the appearance of God's glory. We've seen the announcement of God's gospel. And we come to verses 13 and 14 here. And we see the extolment of God's grace. In verse 13, we, we read that suddenly, right, suddenly, then the angel just finished announcing to the shepherds this good news and the confirmatory sign of this good news. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with God a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. I, this is stunning to me. This is absolutely stunning. It's like 
They just finished telling the shepherds about this good news of the birth of this baby. And all of a sudden, all of these angels burst onto the scene and start praising God. It's incredible. We're not told how many angels there were. We're just told a multitude of heavenly hosts suddenly appeared and were praising God. Now, I don't know how many a multitude is. I don't think there's a measuring cup that tells us how much a multitude is. But it's, it's more than a few, right? If, if you have four or five people come to your door and, and you answer the door and four or five people are there, you don't yell up to your wife, there's a multitude of people at our door, right? This is probably hundreds or up to thousands of angels that burst onto the scene in an, in, in an instant. And, and what are they doing on the scene? They're praising God for the birth of the Savior and giving glory to God. I don't know of another place in the Bible where this happens. I don't know of another place in the Bible where hundreds, potentially thousands of angels burst onto the scene on earth and are praising God. But it happens here because the birth of Jesus is that big of a deal. It's that big of a deal. This is heaven modeling worship for earth. This is heaven modeling earth, worship for earth. We, we know that because you jump down to verse 20 and the shepherds are doing the exact same thing. It says the shepherds, after they went and saw the baby, they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So these angels burst onto the scene. They're praising God. They are amazed at the birth of Jesus. They're rejoicing in, in unified chorus. And the question for us this morning is, the angels are rejoicing and praising God. Are we? Or have we gotten bored? Has this become routine for us? Have we lost the joy of our salvation that we're meant to have? Have we lost the wonder of the fact that our God has come so low to rescue us? Angels aren't even sinners in need of rescue. At least these angels aren't. And yet they're amazed at what our God has done. How much more so should we be who have been the recipients of this good news of great joy, who have received the saving grace of God in our lives? A multitude of heavenly hosts praying, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. Now, maybe you're confused when you see that word glory to God because earlier in the passage, the glory of the Lord shone around them and now here they're saying glory to God. Okay, uh, the angels are using the word in a little bit different way here, okay? The word glory conveys the idea of weight, and so the angels are saying God is deserving of weighty honor and worship and praise. Why? Because he's God in the highest. Yes, that's what they say. But the second line of their song tells us why, the, why this exalted God is deserving of such weighty honor. It's because he came in the work of Jesus. He came to bring peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. The angels are praising God for this. They've been watching this play out for thousands of years, ever since humanity turned away from God, and God did not forsake them and drop the hammer of judgment, but, but instituted a rescue plan to save rebels like us. They've been watching this play out. And they see the Savior arrive on the scene, finally breaking into the darkness of this world to save people out of it. Now, as I said earlier, this peace on earth is not, it does not immediately end all conflicts on earth. That's not what these angels are talking about. They're not primarily talking about peace in our hearts, although that is the result of peace with God. They're talking about peace with God. 
Notice what they say. They say, on earth, peace among those with what? With whom he is pleased, with whom God is pleased. This is about peace between God and sinners. And it, this peace doesn't just mean that God will leave you alone now. No, this peace means that God, your sin is dealt with, and so God is, God is free to pour out his love and favor and mercy upon you for all of your days. That's what it means to be in peace with God. Oh yes, in the first century, Rome was quick to proclaim the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We're going to put an end to wars in, in territories that we rule over. But a Stoic poet said, yes, Rome can bring us peace from war, but Rome cannot bring us peace from our passions, our envy, our pride. Rome cannot give us peace in our hearts, which every man longs for more than peace between nations. Rome can't do that. And Rome certainly, certainly cannot bring peace between God and sinners. But Jesus can. And when there's peace between us and God, when, when our sin is dealt with and out of the way, and there's peace between us and God, and all that's left is His favor and love poured out on us, that produces peace in our hearts. The, kind of, the, kind of, the peace of God that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, Paul says. Rome can't do that. Jesus can. And he came to do that. Now, what do the angels mean when they say peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased? This does not mean peace with everyone automatically. This Savior came into the world to bring peace with specific people that God was pleased with, this passage says. Now, what does he mean when he says, those people whom God is pleased with? Is God pleased with any of us on our own because of our sin? No. I think the NIV translates this helpfully. It says, and on earth, peace among those with whom, on whom his favor rests. Peace among those on whom his favor rests. How do we know if God's favor rests upon us? Jesus came into the world to bring peace with those whom God had set his favor upon. How do we know if we're those people that God has set his favor upon? You ready? Here's how we know. Do you see your need for this Savior? He was born for you. Have you embraced him with trust? Have you cried out to him to save you? If you have, you are those people on whom God has set his favor. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. With faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ, whom he sent to be our Savior, God is pleased with us. And listen, the door is not closed. The door is not closed. If you receive Christ at any moment, you show yourself to be one of those people on whom God's favor rests. This is what the birth of Jesus means, friends. It means God's glory has drawn near for our rescue and for our rejoicing. Now let me ask you, let me ask you, is this, is this what your life is defined by? Are you regularly meditating on, preaching the gospel to yourself, thinking about the gospel, turning it over in your heart and mind, or has this gotten crowded out? By family struggles and schooling and raising kids and marriage troubles and difficult circumstances in your life. Because it can so easily get crowded out, amen? 
And all of a sudden, the great joy that was proclaimed to us by the angels is not joy at all. We're, we're, we're miserable and we're grumpy. In fact, one of the reasons that Christians can be so joyless is that our lives have gotten centered on something other than the gospel. They become centered on marriage or parenting or or dealing with some health issues, or they've been centered on some legalism or some sin or idolatry that you've gone to instead of the Lord. Joylessness in Christianity is a sign that the gospel has been displaced in the center of your life. And it can happen so easily. You know, if you take a penny, a a tiny penny, and you hold it up to your eye, Really close to your eye, you focus on it so much, it will literally blot out the sun in your perspective. Something so small. And I'm not saying all of our problems are small, by the way. But something so small, if you focus on it enough, will literally blot out the brightness of the sun to your eye. That's how a lot of our problems become. We focus on it so much, we forget about the gospel. We're not preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're not thinking about the gospel. We're not singing about the gospel. We're not having the gospel pressed down into the depths of our soul. And all of a sudden, these pennies are blotting out the sun. This little marriage struggle or parenting. And and our joy vanishes like that. The longer I have been a Christian, the more I am convinced that my greatest need is to have the gospel front and center every morning. Whatever whatever struggles are going on in my life, what I need to be reminded of is the gospel. And what happens is that this deep joy pervades my life, even if the day is a grind for me, even if there are marriage, parenting struggles, schooling struggles, work struggles, you name it. A deep joy pervades all of that. And it's hard to get through all of that stuff with, without that joy, amen? Have you forgotten the good news? Maybe this Christmas you need to just spend every day turning this over in your heart and mind, preaching the gospel to yourself until your heart sings the songs of the angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this incredible news. That your glory has drawn near to sinners like us, not to drop the hammer of judgment, but to bring us rescue and rejoicing in the midst of this difficult and broken world, Lord. Yes, Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. You came to bring an everlasting peace without end, but that peace starts between us and God. It starts between us and this God who brings judgment on sin and sinners. It starts with forgiveness of sins, and then it works its way out through our heart. And then over time, Jesus, when you return and make all things right, that peace will pervade every square inch of this universe. Oh, how we long for that day. Until that day, Lord, give us a rugged, weighty joy in what you have done for us. There's no God like you who shows mercy to those who have who have walked away from you, who have rebelled against you. Who have, there's no God like you who has loved sinners so deeply, so extremely. That's why you're so worthy of our love and adoration and worship. We give you all the glory. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, Amen.